What makes a revolution a revolution? You know, as citizens of the United States of America, what comes to mind when we think of revolution? Well, we think of American Revolution, don't we? Our American Revolutionary War. And we recall the battles that were fought to win our independence. We also think of documents such as the Declaration of Independence and the later Constitution that was written. Right now, the very popular musical, Hamilton, is kind of re-examining that time period with a modern twist using rap and hip-hop, and it seeks to find in these noble ideas that are contained within those documents a place for all people, even those who were not envisioned in the original conception of our country. And there were some noble ideas expressed. All men are created equal. No taxes without representation. We still kind of want to chant that one. Though. We may have lost the battle on that one. Anyway, uh, the right to privacy. The right to worship freely like we are today. The right to free speech. That just names a few. But what made our revolution a revolution and not just another revolt? Revolts happen all over the world, don't they? About every day, it seems like. You know, in the Declaration of Independence, they address this concern, noting that this revolution was not taken up lightly, wasn't taken for personal gain, but was rather because of the then government of King George. That government was repressive and unresponsive to the needs of the colonists. So a revolution implies a needed change due to neglect and oppression of those in authority. So when I'm talking about revolutionary love, I'm by no means talking about taking up weapons and fighting, okay? But that term revolution is one I think we need to explore, especially when we add to it the word love. Revolutionary love. What is it? In reviewing the definitions that are provided in the dictionary, I looked at the word revolution, and beyond the political implications of this, I found a secondary meaning in Webster's that I think helps a lot. It says, it is a radical and pervasive change in society and in the social structure. Now this is more descriptive of the revolution needed in the church and in our lives and our culture. You see, we are not seeking to overturn an unfair, exploitive form of religious expression or oppression. No, we are seeking to overturn a destructive attitude that is infiltrated into our fellowship to the point where we consider it established and normal. And not simply because something, excuse me, not simply because something is established and normal doesn't make it right, does it? Not at all. And thinking back to our Revolutionary War, slavery was an established point of law when we fought a Revolutionary War. Unfortunately, slavery was even supported by many Christians, and they got the mercy. 
In a similar way, many Christians supported the Jim Crow laws of the 1900s, which established legal systems that trampled all over the rights of non-white populations. Now, I don't think any today would say that those laws were right. Would you? We also need to be careful as Christians that we don't support any doctrine that we have not first put under Christ's love first principles. We cannot say that the ends, especially uh, that the ends justify any means it takes to take care. Now, this is a strong statement, but I believe it. I'd rather lose my rights in this world than compromise the law of liberty in Christ Jesus and endanger my eternal citizenship. Or worse, cause others to lose or to never find their faith in Christ. If we condone what is unjust and immoral in the name of Christ, and in the name of Christian values, what does that say about our values, folks? This is simple logic that we need to apply to our Christian lives. And we need to do it in a radical and in a revolutionary way. We need a radical restoration of love into the practice of the church because the ways of the world are constantly threatening to usurp the authority of God's love. And it's seen in our practice rather than our doctrine. You know, we, we can talk the good talk, but can we walk the walk? Last week, the teacher of the law, Luke 10, espoused orthodoxy by declaring the twofold summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yet he refused to acknowledge Righteousness, the righteousness of the Samaritan in the parable that Jesus told. He couldn't bring himself to do that. So he may have talked the good talk, but he would not follow it up. We have to be sure that our espousals, our verbal declarations, line up with our practice. And if they don't, be sure the enemies of the cross are lined up out the door, waiting to attack us, waiting to point out our inadequacies. Waiting to point out our hypocrisies. They're more than happy to do that. So church, we need to constantly re-examine ourselves to ensure that we are living up to the ideals set in our constitution. What constitution am I talking about? I'm talking about the word of God. The word of both Old and New Testaments as understood through the lens of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, and our Savior. Then, guided by the Holy Spirit, we must come back to these holy writings, our Constitution, with a radical humility. If we hope to achieve a revolutionary restoration of love back to its prime position in our faith and in our practice. Earlier in his book, Love First, Don McLaughlin told the story of how a young woman's faith was shattered by a woman dancing with Glee in church at the news of Ted Kennedy's death. This vengeful, hate-filled act, devoid of love, caused someone to lose their faith in Christ. Church, I know we kind of sit behind 
I'm going to confess something to you. I think we have. You can confess something even further to you. I think And what's really rough, even though I repented of it, even though I try, I know with an absolute certainty, that's deep, that my behavior damaged someone's faith. Folks, it's easy to give in to our instincts and go for the easy dig, the snide comment, or the harsh put down. The constant temptation that we have to fight. We have to resist it. How do we do that? We do that, I think, first and foremost, by confessing that we have the problem. We can't live in this fantasy world where we think, well, I'm a Christian and everything's good and I'm cool. No. Knowledge that we're Christian has already told us that no, not everything is cool. I needed a Savior. I still need a Savior every day. And we need to constantly understand our situation and repent of it. That's part of what taking up our cross daily is all about. It's about putting Him first and foremost in our life. We also have to have an understanding of what we're giving up if we allow the world to creep in and steal our love. This is the problem for the churches in Galatia. Rather than standing firm in their hope in Jesus Christ, the freedom that they had in Him, they were allowing themselves to become enslaved again. They were allowing themselves to be burdened with an oppressive religious system. That being the law interpreted through the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. This system was oppressive because of its reliance upon legalistic righteousness, or you might say salvation by works. If you could keep their system, you were saved. If you could not keep their system, you were lost. It was all... But Paul, back in chapter 2, has already made it clear that no one, no one, can keep the law faultless. Even himself, or even though he kept this legalistic system faultlessly, and that's Paul's exact words, his relying upon that system instead of God's grace broke the spirit of the law of Moses and led him into the sin of pride. Folks, if we seek justification by any other standard than Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have endangered our eternal salvation. We cannot depend upon a political system, an economic system, or any other man-made system to save us. Only the divine system of radical grace given through Jesus Christ, our Lord, can save us. Now, we may try to drape religion over these man-made systems and make them look good. But that doesn't change their nature. They can only be changed by revolutionary transformation. And that revolution begins in the heart of you and I, in the heart of Christians, where they let love lead first in every aspect of their lives. Then flowing out of that life that is transformed, like leaven, it works out into the world. 
into our culture. But it is dependent upon each and every one of us letting love be first. Remember, spousals are nice, but actions speak louder than words. You know, the funny thing about man-made systems is they can truly be made to look divine. The Pharisees and the Sadducees look very pious and righteous. And yet, what did Jesus call them? Whitewashed sepulchres, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're almost. You know, you just have to look around and apply that love first test to see how prevalent this thinking is, even among those of us who should know better. Still remember a dear saying on our deathbed, hoping, hoping that you've been good enough to make it into heaven. She believed that she had to save herself and save herself. There are times where we bound upon people an obligation that God did not find. You know, you have to be in the building whenever the doors are open. Okay, that's one example. By the way, though, you are welcome into this building whenever the doors are open. I'm not saying you don't come to, you know, come, but, you know, it's not a binding thing. It's something we should do because we love it. We want to serve God. But when you bind it as an obligation in a way that God has not done it, then we have walked into a legalistic system of righteousness. How about this one? Ranking of sins. I may have my problems, but you're not compared to this guy. I'm pretty good at it. That doesn't work either. It didn't work so well for the Pharisee at the temple either, did it? And he looked at that publican and said, oh, he's done nothing like him. We struggle with this. What's your name again? We struggle with this. And occasionally we fall. But folks, it doesn't mean we need to get in there like a pig and wallow in it. We need to instead reach out for God's saving hand and hold on to it. Let the blood of His Son cleanse us. We are saved not by our works, but we are saved by a righteous God and Son, our Savior, sacrificed is all sufficient for forgiveness of sins and for righteousness. Listen to Paul again in verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we Eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hold. This is not something we earn. It's something we receive through faith when, along with all the saints, we are brought before the great throne on the last day. We are saved not so that we could work the rest of our lives to try to earn our salvation and become perfect to be saved. We were saved to be saved. Right away, when you come up out of the water, you're saved. And as long as you're trying to walk with Christ, His blood cleanses us of our sin. There's no more work required. At least not the self work, the type of work that is seen like in the Pharisees. None of that self-justification work. 
None of that works-oriented variety. Work is required, but it is the work of faith eager to express to others the love that we have received from Jesus Christ. Listen now, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, I know there are several of you here who make it a habit of memorizing scripture on a weekly basis. I'm going to recommend this passage as one to memorize. This is one that you can put in the bank and hold on to. It is a good one. In Christ, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That was the old way of self-justification. A righteousness based on works rather than Christ's saving power. And it has no value. You can take all the righteousness that you have earned over your life. You can put it on your shoulder. You can drag it up to heaven and put it down before the throne of God. And all he's going to see is a pile of dust. It has no value. What will count? Faith expressing itself through love. When I was hungry, did you meet me? When I was in jail, did you come and visit me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was lonely, did you come and visit me? When I was at my wit's end, did you talk me off the ledge? When I was unreasonable, did you extend grace to me? When my faith was wavering, did you refresh it again? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? Like a partial list of the way that faith can express itself. I know that you could come up with a whole lot more. In fact, I challenge you to think about that for a second. Think about ways that you can work your faith out in love as you go through your daily lives. If we can understand that we don't have to work for our salvation, that's already been accomplished for us. We just have to live in it. If we will understand that and put it into practice, it will transform our lives. It will transform this church. I believe it will transform the world because the love of God has power. Any of you watch that quaint little wedding across the pond yesterday? Young couple get married. Love that Cinderella story, don't we? What caught my imagination, now there was plenty of stuff to catch my attention as all the notables were there and all the pop circumstances. But what has kept my interest was the sermon delivered by the Episcopal Bishop, Michael Kirk. And I would encourage you to go online, view it or read it, video and text to both day. It's worth your time. I liked it. He stood before royalty and reminded everyone, great and small, that the love of God is the thing that matters because that is where the real power is. Curry stated and started the sermon with a quote from the late Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. That quote was this. We must discover the power of love. The redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. Love 
is the only way. And today we're honoring our graduates. Kelsey, Shaylin, Lucas, I have been privileged, and I mean this truly, to watch you guys come today. And, uh, and it is a beautiful thing. And uh, I just feel so touched by God to be able to be a part of your life. I've been touched by God to see how your faith is growing. And I am looking forward to how you will grow as you take further steps in your adulthood and how God is going to use But I want you to remember Dr. King's admonition. Love is the only way. God's love, which I know will be with you and will work powerfully through each and every one of you. I want you to open yourselves to his divine love. Let it work through you. Let it transform you. And you will be pleasing to God. And you will be huge impact on your friends, on your community, on the whole world. Church, what's true for them is true for you, too. Will you keep on trying to earn what you've already been given? Or will you instead accept that it is yours? And by faith, express that love to those around you freely. There's a hymn that I really love. It's called O Love, written by George Matheson. First verse goes like this. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths is only rich. Oh. Love of God is all sufficient. Why? Why do we cheat and impoverish ourselves with when the riches of God's love in Christ Jesus are so abundant in us. They are ours because he first loved us and he gave himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But to receive this grace, we must first believe he is God's son, that he truly loves us. Then we must follow his example and die to ourselves so that we can live through him. Die to the impulse to self-justify. Die to the impulse to earthly power as the path to salvation. Die to sin so that Christ can reign in us and work through us as we express our faith through acts of godly love. When we do that, we need not fear life or death, for our hope is assured and our eternal home, our room in our Father's house, is secure in the love of our Lord. We are free to live in love and to let our faith work itself out in action. That agape love, that noble love, that love that is uniquely characteristic of God. God's love. A love that loves all, friend and foe, saint and sinner. Let us, church, dare in every part of our lives to live the truth that Paul declared, that the only thing that counts is faith. Expressing itself in love. Let us sing. Let us sing.